This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome to self-work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've practiced in Fayetteville, Arkansas since 1993, moving here from the great state of Texas. And I'm more than delighted that you're here. First, obviously, I want to let everyone know that my major message concerning coronavirus is that if nothing is more apparent now than ever, it's that we're all in life together. And caring for one another, whether it's about making sure someone who might be immunocompromised or just older is okay, looking for ways to support your local medical teams, looking for safe ways to help those that are going to be in big financial trouble, whether with hunger or shelter issues arising, they're all things we can give and be aware of. And if you need something, now is the time to ask your friends and your support system for that help. If you're struggling with mental illness, depression, anxiety, where you can tend to lose sight of what's rational and allow the voice of your illness to convince you that dread and victimization need to govern your thinking, please realize that that thinking will only hurt you and people you love. We need to help one another find courage and our resilience. And if you need support, of course, ask for it. Practice good self-care. Don't forget exercise. I noticed this morning that there are all kinds of studios and gyms coming forward with free exercise videos. You can exercise with your kids if you're home with them. Obviously, the ambiguity of all this is more than difficult. My husband and I had a spat yesterday morning. Then both of us realized how we just needed to breathe and calm down, fight the known battles and not move on to the unknown ones. But I wanted to say today, hang in there, lean on friends and encourage them to lean on you. But now let's get to our topic. A conversation with someone I'd seen a few years ago who's coming back into therapy was actually my trigger for today's episode. We're going to cover literally how to begin to stop beating yourself up. And the technique may surprise you a little, because it may seem that when you're doing this actual behavior, you're just being extra careful or caring. But if you're in the habit of beating yourself up, and you don't claim that it's okay that you're human... You have a lot of self-doubt. All of that can lead to a rabbit hole of shame and emotional paralysis. So let's get started with what you can do about it. The listener email is from someone who was asking if I had time to talk with her individually. And you know, I wish I had time to do that. But we'll talk about options for how to make the most out of at least what I can offer and some changes I've had to make due to the success, which I, of course, owe to you, of self-work. I recently was talking to one of my former patients. Let's call her Angela. She struggles with bipolar 2 disorder, perfectionism, and a good dose of obsessive-compulsive disorder. She's done incredible work in therapy, had gone on some medication to help with mood swings and insomnia, and had been quite successful at realizing when her obsessiveness was getting in her way of creating a support system and allowing others into her real world. As she caught up with me about what had gone on since last we met, I heard that she'd carried those changes even further and had felt more empowered than ever in her life. So why was she calling me? She'd hit a rough spot. 
What she admitted to me were habits that she'd never completely dropped after our work together, and those habits had worsened substantially in the last few months. What she was describing at first, as she talked, was a fairly classic imposter syndrome. In fact, if you want to listen to more about imposter syndrome, I'll have the link in the show notes, and it's episode 113. It's when you feel like you're a fake or you're feeling at any minute, someone's going to figure out that you aren't who your credentials or your experience make you out to be. She'd been promoted and had found herself working in an even more intense environment. Now, I should say this patient also identified heavily with perfectly hidden depression. In her new job, she genuinely admired many of her coworkers, and such began a tragic but sometimes hard-to-stop habit of negatively comparing herself with them. The immense self-doubt was all triggered by one conversation she had where someone simply asked her, so, what's in front of you these days? Meaning that what was she working on? Somehow that one question flung her far afield from her previous sense of well-being, and she was flabbergasted that the same issues that had brought her into my office were plaguing her again. Let me first say, I see this return of symptoms all the time, in myself, in others, in my own clients. What I see is twofold— There's often a return to a previous confusion or emotional space where you're not acting rationally or seeing things the way they really are. Sometimes without realizing it, you're slipping back into old habits. You can get triggered by something easily, as Angela had done, and not be aware of it, but she was, which is great, and that's why she called me. So you can see it in a sort of a sense of confusion, and then all of a sudden, the second part is that you realize you're starting to pick up old bad habits. What she tearfully revealed to me was something I'd heard many times before. Things like, I don't write an email that I don't go over again and again, not only before sending it, but after it's sent. And if I see a mistake or something I perceive as a mistake, I'll quickly re-email with some kind of explanation. I've heard this also from people who go to parties and spend the next two days filtering through their interactions. Did I say something weird? Did I hurt anyone's feelings? What did people there think of me? Or maybe that event is a date, not a party, or an interview, or a meeting, or a text. You can obsessively be compelled to go over and over and over your interaction with others and find fault. And somehow, if you can find that fault, you've got to explain it, or change it, or rectify it somehow. You can hear the urgency. Now, maybe you hear this as caring about others' feelings, and I guess it could be, Perhaps if you'd had too much to drink, or you did something that even your friends tell you was pretty outside the box of appropriate, or your own ego got in the way, or you got too angry, those things would hopefully lead to an apology, or in the least, an acknowledgement. But I'm talking about something different, a daily habit of beating yourself up for the smallest of things. But you don't view them as small. In fact, if you identify with perfectly hidden depression, as Angela did, That imperfection can seem like it defines you. This is beating yourself up under the guise of wanting to do the right thing or striving for excellence or not stopping until things are perfect, or at least your version of perfect. So how do you change this extremely ingrained habit? First, you have to see it as a problem. This means that you begin to consider what life would be like without constantly berating yourself. What if you could look at yourself in the mirror or read something you wrote or put your kids to bed at night after a long day and instead of saying to yourself, 
I look terrible. This is terrible. I'm a terrible mom or dad. And instead you'd say, I'm not perfect, but that's not my goal. My goal is to be good enough. I can trust in myself that I don't have to keep some kind of pressure on to do my best. And plus, it's not up for me to decide for others whether they see me as attractive or competent or loving. That's my depression or my insecurity or my having a bad day that's talking. But beating up on myself is more paralyzing than it is helpful, so I want to stop. This is harder than it sounds for many, but it's actually more than doable. The second thing you can do is you can choose to stop feeling your insecurity and allow mistakes to exist. Accepting something conceptually, as in the first step, can seem easy compared to this one. Because this step entails letting others see what you consider, at least initially, as unacceptable. But what I believe strongly is that every time you have to fix what you perceive as an unacceptable error, that behavior is fueling your shame and self-loathing. You're enabling your own punching yourself in the gut. So every time you go back and check that email or redo your hair, or whatever it happens to be, no matter how slight or how important. You're actually fueling your own self-loathing. One of the people that I interviewed years ago for Perfectly Hidden Depression was a motivational speaker. He told me this, that after he'd given a talk, many would come up and say how wonderful it had been, or what a change in their lives they felt from his words. One might think that things would stop there, right? And both would leave that conversation feeling really good. What was fascinating to hear was what happened afterwards. He admitted, All I could think about after I talked was how I'd messed up a paragraph or said a wrong word. So I'd joke about it with the person who was giving me positive feedback. I'd say something like, Well, could you believe it? I got that name wrong. Or I got a little confused there for a minute. Hope that didn't get in your way. And of course... What he'd receive were affirmations about how that didn't happen, and he realized right in that moment that he was fueling his own insecurity. He needed to let them know he fumbled a bit because he needed their reassurance that it hadn't made a difference. This was a powerful insight on this guy's part, and it started him on quite a journey, realizing the depth at which he'd go to get affirmation and to make sure that his mistake hadn't been too bad, too hurtful, or too noticeable. All of you who listen regularly know that I've certainly struggled with my own perfectionism and anxiety. I had a friend long ago say to me, you know, Margaret, you can't have a problem that you don't already know about and are working on. That actually sounds kind of narcissistic as I hear myself say it. It was their kind way of telling me that I was in the same habit as this motivational speaker, if someone pointed out a struggle in me, I felt compelled to tell them, oh yeah, I know I do that. I'm working on it. I needed to stop. I was fueling my own shame. Because what would happen afterward is that I would stew and stew and wonder, how had they seen that about me? It was a terrible place to be. It kept me defensive and kept other people shut out. Hopefully I've made some progress and I can see what I'm doing it now which is, of course, the first step. I started a little campaign with myself sometime within the last couple of years to see what I could do in tiny ways to address this almost compulsion on my part. I'd had the habit of checking my Instagram posts, for example, to make sure there were no errors in my typing. 
That wasn't okay. I needed to change that if there were. I read other people's stuff all the time and never thought how idiotic they were if there was a spelling or an error. So I decided I wanted to stop checking. Now, if it was an important email, a work email of some kind, yes, I would go back and check that. But not an Instagram post, not a Facebook post. So I stopped checking. I'd look back maybe a couple of days later, and you bet, I'd gone too fast, and there it was, my error glaring. I swallowed hard and just kept on keeping on. It's been an interesting experiment. And in fact, I mentioned that experiment to Angela when we talked, and she said, oh, I could never do that. I'd have to change it. So if you're like that, I hope this episode is really speaking to you. This example may be important because I think it's good to pick something small to begin your journey to stop fueling your own self-beratement. Those small changes will lead to bigger ones. And here's the third step. You can move toward things that are even harder for you and challenge yourself to grow. Now take a big breath. This one's even harder for someone who's in the habit of beating themselves up. Purposefully choosing to move toward that anxiety and challenging your insecurity. You choose to simply sit with something that you know will leave you feeling vulnerable. And you stay there, you sit there, and you are there. For example, someone that I work with had gastric bypass surgery, and she was working on this very thing. She came in one day with shorts on and proudly said, I'm choosing to allow people to see things I'm struggling with the most, and that's the extra skin that's left after the surgery. The things you think are unmentionable, that you can't talk about, that you can't reveal, either physically, spiritually, emotionally, whatever, you move toward them and challenge yourself to grow. Other examples could be that you reveal a fear that you never thought you would. Maybe you tell your partner that you've been afraid that you weren't sexually pleasing to them and ask what they might like. Maybe you're insecure about the fact you think you sound dumb so you never speak, and then you choose to do so. You be in that moment. Now, It's a good idea to only do this with people you trust first because others who sense your insecurity and don't have your well-being in mind might pounce on that insecurity for their own agenda. And that's not what you want to do when you're trying to make these kinds of changes. So the challenge is, of course, best when you're going to be around people that really, you know, get you and that you can count on them. They might even know that you're very insecure about what you're choosing to do. So they'll support you and applaud you. If you don't have those kinds of people in your life, then perhaps even admitting that to yourself can lead to a new discovery that you need to look for those people. Basically, you lean into your anxiety and manage it. You ask yourself, what am I telling myself I could never do? And you do it. Or at least some form of it. I could never have a meal by myself. I could never whatever. And you just do it. It's amazing how each small step can lead into an even braver step and then braver and more brave. And you can find your courage and actually come out on the other side, not needing any more to constantly beat yourself up. It's a wonderful change.
This week's listener email, which of course is a regular feature of self-work, is someone who'd like to chat with me about herself. Here's her question. Hi, Dr. Margaret. I had posted you on my Instagram story a couple weeks ago and uh, messaged you. I'm so excited to finally be doing this, to have the time to do this message. I had been trying to find a podcast that was therapeutic, like counseling, uh, and I came across yours and it just really felt like home. And it was one that finally, I was like, finally, this feels like home. Um, So I love your podcast. I love everything that you do on Instagram. And I really wanted to see if I could just pick your brain on my boyfriend's going to be fiance. We've been together for four years. I'm a huge mental health advocate. We both have been through childhood trauma on opposite sides of the spectrum. And I have learned so much. I went through counseling last summer and participated in EMDR therapy, learned so much about myself, really found a passion for mental health and disorders. And I have documented and just really like have a lot of information on some things that host behaviors. And I would just love to go over those with you. Thanks, hopefully you uh, call me back. First of all, of course, I'm flattered and honored for people who want my advice on their particular story. And I'd love to be able to listen to everyone's complete story and maybe even have at least one session with everyone, but I can't do that. There are several reasons, both pragmatic and time-wise, but it's also my understanding at this time that even if I got an online certification, I'm still only allowed to counsel with people who are residents of Arkansas, since that's where I hold my license. Some people could say, well, you're not actually doing therapy you're doing a consultation, but the ethical line is very, very subtle and can be crossed easily. For example, when I'm answering emails, I always try to couch what I say not as advice, but as feedback or suggestions. And then I almost always say, please talk to your own local therapist about this or read a book or something that mentions other expertise other than my own. There are some therapy podcasts that at the very beginning will have a caveat saying this isn't therapy and that's to address this very issue in psychology and psychiatry. But certainly people who, for example, write for newspapers or magazines and offer their quote-unquote advice are doing just that. They're not restricted by the state in which they hold a license or the person they're talking to is living. So there are definite exceptions to the rule. But I'm always trying to be careful about that. There is a way, of course, to get more in touch with me by joining my Facebook closed group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. Again, that's facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. And there you can tell a little bit more of your story and not only get my feedback, but my gosh, the feedback of some wonderful and very diverse people from all over the world. So I definitely hope that you'll do that. I do need to talk about my email system. In fact, I got a review recently that said they really liked the podcast, but I'd promised to return emails, and it had been three weeks since I'd returned theirs. And they're exactly right. Almost on every podcast I have said, send me your email, and I myself will get back with you. However, due to so many of your wonderful questions and stories that matter to me, I'm probably not going to have time anymore to answer all of them. There's simply too many. And I don't want to shift those off to someone else that's not who I am. So again, I'll encourage you to join the Facebook group. 
You could email me with a suggestion for a podcast, but I will also only be personally answering about six emails a month. Right now I'm getting maybe 20 or two dozen. I just simply don't have time to do that, especially since many of them are fairly long. I will likely take the first six or so emails of the month, so if you're going to write, maybe you can do so in the very first days of the month. I'll try to set something up where I have a standard way of knowing that yours wasn't the email that I could answer this month. I will see how to do that. But please know that this is not personal. I thank you for being here and asking questions. You know, I couldn't ask for better listeners. Let's keep in touch. I always want to know who you are and why you're listening. I just simply can't keep up with the volume. So we'll try this for a while and see how it goes. Thank you, of course, for listening to Self Work. You can email me, maybe the first of the month, at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. You can go to my website, DrMargaretRutherford.com, and subscribe there. That gives you an easy weekly newsletter that you'll receive to help you keep the blog post and the podcast available to you quite readily. Please leave reviews of the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. And if you're reading Perfectly Hidden Depression or you've gotten a copy of the book, I would love and appreciate and be extremely grateful for a rating or review on Amazon. I have the somewhat audacious desire to reach 100 reviews, and I'm only at 44. So you can help me out if you'd like. These times are so ambiguous, but as I said in the intro, we're all in this together. Thank you again for being here. Take good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been... Self-work.